Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Today's scripture is from Matthew 7, 13 through 23. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Hey, good morning. Well, back in the 1990s, when my wife and I were in college, we had some really good friends who went on from there to become missionaries in Hungary. And then when they came back, we stayed in contact with them. And when they came back from the field, they brought me a gift that I still have in my office. It's, it's really neat. It's a, it's a print of an old a poster from Hungary, written in, you know, with Hungarian words on it. It's obviously in an older style, probably from the late 1800s or early 1900s. Um, and the most obvious thing about this poster is that in this older style, it's not just, you know, painting a, a picture of a landscape or something, but it's really intentionally meant to communicate a message, particularly a religious message. And the, the poster is oriented, if you can imagine with me, um, it's oriented top to bottom, And on the right side, the smaller portion of the poster, it's got little pictures of people doing different things, little interactions between them in this like 19th century style of people doing good things, going to church and helping the poor and, uh, you know, uh, farming their fields faithfully, dressed modestly, etc. And at the top of that side of the poster, there's heaven, the, the celestial city with angels and the glory of God. Most of the poster, the other side, that takes up most of the, of the real estate of the poster, is also little stories of people doing things, but all really bad stuff, like people um, betting on dog fights and gambling and going to brothels and drunkenness, having derby parties, stuff like that, uh, <laughs> dancing, kids stealing apples off a tree, you know, all this kind of stuff. And All of that side, the bulk of the poster, at the top of that side of the poster, there's this city that's on fire with like demons and and things are exploding and people are being thrown off cliffs, etc. So it's pretty intense, right? Maybe you've seen that poster. I just happen to have a Hungarian version of it, but I've seen it in other languages and English as well. And it's not very difficult 
to imagine, I think, or to guess what the text is that's printed at the bottom of this. It's a Bible verse, and in fact, it's Matthew 7, 13, and 14, because Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for easy and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Few are those who find it, but narrow and difficult is the narrow way that leads to life, and few are those who find it. So this poster represents, and the reason this verse is on there is because it represents how Christians have, probably through most of the church's history, tended to read these verses that we just had read. And it makes sense, right? We can all think of people whose lives, and we know this in ourselves and others, that when you give yourself over to bad and immoral things, the result is not life, but it's destruction, right? So it's understandable that this is the verse that's usually, these are the verses that's connected to this kind of image. But is that what Jesus is saying? Is that what these verses mean? Well, I start with this image because it's actually one of the three images that Jesus concludes his famous Sermon on the Mount with. He uses three powerful images because we tend to remember things in threes, and he really wants to drive home the meaning of the whole Sermon on the Mount. We've just heard the first two of them read, the one about the broad and narrow ways, the one about the wolves in sheep's clothing and false prophets, the third one about wise and foolish builders. We didn't have read yet, but Pastor Kevin will address that next week to conclude our time in the sermon. And here's the question. What is he saying? What do these images mean? I mean, they're they're powerful metaphors, but they're always not always easy to understand. What is this talking about? Wolves in sheep's clothing, and broad and narrow ways, and different kinds of fruit, and and some of it being burned and destruction. Actually, it all seems very intense and negative. And what is all? How does this? Here's the big question: How does this relate? to everything else he's been saying in the sermon. I mean, this is the conclusion of the sermon, and usually you say the same thing in the conclusion again that you've been saying all along. So how does this all connect? Well, let's look at these first two images. We'll start with the first one, the two roads. So he says, I'll just read it for you again. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. So the picture here is of two different roads, and maybe that's not even the best word for it in the ancient world because of the difference. If you can imagine one road, it's well paved with stones and it's smoothed out and it's straight. You're not going up and down hills. It's a smooth road. This is what the Romans really contributed to the ancient society, ancient Mediterranean society. So they built these amazing roads. We still have some of these roads. Like you can go and visit them. So they would pave with stones, these broad, easy roads to, to walk down. And the other, and it leads then to a, a beautiful entrance to a city. Imagine that with this gate that swings wide open and ornate, ornate uh, architecture on it. So that's one. The one he's contrasting to, though, is, is not like a highway or road like we're thinking of. It's really more like a cow path. So if you imagine a road that it, it's only a road or it's a path because people have just walked that way for a long time with their animals and with their, their burdens and walking this way. So it's rough, it's bumpy, it's hilly. It's like you know an interstate versus the Appalachian Trail or something. It's, it's a big difference. It reminds me of when we lived in Scotland, uh, walking in both Scotland and in England, when I've been there too, that uh, I remember one time in particular in Scotland, you just everywhere in the UK, you just walk everywhere. And we one time took on this walk that ended up being way longer and more involved than we thought. And we lost the path. And there, you know, we got 
toddlers and strollers and you're going through cow fields. It's just crazy. This is what that image is. It's a, it's a path that is narrow, it's difficult, you don't always know exactly where you're going, in contrast to this broad, well-paved road. Now, Jesus' point, though, is very intense. He's not just using this as like a quaint sermon illustration. He's actually saying that one of these leads to life and the other leads to death. And if you and I were just to stop and think about which you know, which is the good road? Well, obviously, the good road is the well-paved one where you can have lots of people taking a Sunday stroll on it. It's easy. It's, it's made for you. But he says the exact opposite, doesn't he? He says that that broad way that leads to a beautiful gate and all looks good and everybody's happy actually is leading to destruction. And the narrow, difficult, pressed-in, bumpy, rough way is the way that leads to life. And so in in putting these sort of two roads before us and really shocking us in what he says about them, Jesus is standing in the long line of God's prophets throughout all the Bible who would often present God's way before people and say, you need to decide which road you're going to go down. I think of Moses. Remember in Exodus chapter 24, other places as well, he gives the people all of God's words, and he says, basically, choose this day. Are you going to listen to God, or are you going to want to go back to Egypt or follow other idols, etc., where there's no life? And they say, yes, 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 we're going to do it. Of course, this has to happen again and again, because then in Deuteronomy, at the end of his life, he has to present it all to them again, because they've royally screwed up, right? They've completely abandoned God, and he says, here is God's will. Are you going to follow that, or are you going to follow other ways? And then it continues, And notice, in all that language, he often describes it as a path or a way or a road. Joshua says the same thing. Ezra says the same thing. Nehemiah says the same thing. It goes all throughout the prophets. And and maybe one of the closest connected to our passage, another one that you may not think of, is Psalm 1. Let me read this for you. David says, Blessed or happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. And therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Do you see a lot of the overlapping imagery of of life versus destruction, way and walking and standing and fruit bearing? Do you see that? There's a lot of connections here. And Jesus is really in the line of all these prophets that speak this way. And why? It's because when the Bible lays out for us two ways that really forces a clarification in our lives. God's not out to get us. He's not anti us. He's he's trying to give a clarity to us that we need to think about the fact that our choices do matter and that what we do does shape us to be a certain kind of person. And to talk about life as a road that is constantly branching off in different directions is very appropriate. And so Jesus and all all of God's spokesmen throughout the Bible speak in this way, that there are real life and death consequences to our choices. So still, though, what exactly is Jesus saying here? Well, a lot of times I think when we read these verses, we might 
think that the emphasis is on the numbers. Did you see that, the numerics, or that few find the good way, but many find the bad way? And that is true, right? But I would suggest to you that the, the real emphasis in Jesus' teaching on these two ways is on the contrast between the difficulty of the one way and the ease of the other. The difficulty in the narrow way, and there's a, there's a bit of a play on words that he's using here that goes back to the Beatitudes that sometimes is hard to see for us in English, but the point is that the, the way of Jesus is the way that's pressed down and narrow and persecuted and involves a lot of difficulty and trial. Do you remember, if you go back and read the Beatitudes in chapter 5, that's how they end. That the ultimate example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, to experience true life, is actually to endure suffering. And that's the same idea here, that he's bringing it back and saying that the reality is that the pressed down, difficult, narrow way is the way of Jesus. And the broad way, the way that's easy, is the way of the Pharisees who broaden their prayer shawls and all these kind of things. There's these really beautiful plays on words that Jesus is doing. So unlike the Hungarian poster, I'd suggest to you, Jesus is saying something a lot more challenging to us, and it's this. If you go back, you can either remember, and maybe I encourage you to go back and listen to a sermon we did here on Matthew chapter 5, a couple of them. If you go back or just read them on your own, what you'll see that what Jesus is saying here is exactly what he's been saying all throughout the sermon. It's not something new. He's pushing us to say the way of Jesus, the narrow way, is what? It's not the easy way of doing a bunch of good religious things. That's actually the easy way. The narrow way is focusing instead on the heart. If you think back to chapter 5 of this very same book, Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. And he says, that's right, you shouldn't murder, but that's not enough. You have to look inside your heart Because if your heart is full of hatred and resentment and murderous thoughts towards people, then that's not what God wants. Jesus said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And he says, that's good. You shouldn't commit adultery. But is your heart, the inner person, full of lust and covetousness and and dissatisfaction and longing for something other that's not yours? Or think of chapter 6 when he talks about giving to the poor and prayer and fasting, all really good things to do. He says, those things are great, but if you do those with a heart that's not oriented toward God, that you're doing it for the praise of others and always self-conscious, you know, if we could take, you know, Instagrams of us praying or something, we would, that would be the ultimate sort of, of this, right? This idea of focusing on the outside rather than looking at the heart is what God is pushing us towards, and this is Jesus' way. This is the point. The narrow way, the difficult way, is actually paying attention to what's going on inside of you, where the broad way is doing exactly what you're all doing here today. Coming to church, giving money, doing good things, right? Those are all great things to do, But Jesus says, unless you have a righteousness that surpasses that, if all your righteousness is skin deep, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the point is, the narrow way is this way of focusing on the heart, and that is the more difficult way, 
than to just focus on behavior. But our text doesn't stop there. I want to move on to the second image to see how this might relate. Let me read it for you again. Watch out, Jesus says, for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the things Jesus has just been teaching, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evil doers. Again, very intense language. I get it. It's very intense, and maybe this causes some anxiety in us. We'll come back to that here in a second. But what I want you to realize is that this image is a matryoshka, which is the technical term for one of my favorite things in life, a Russian nested doll, right? You you know those beautiful Russian nested dolls? I love those. That's what this is because the first part of it talked about false prophets and wolves in sheep's clothing. Then the inside... He, uses, he changes metaphors, and it becomes about tree-bearing fruit, and then he comes back to it again where you've got people prophesying, these false prophets, right, who never knew God. So if you think about it, there's, there's like metaphor one, metaphor two, and metaphor one comes back together. So this is all one passage together, but it's kind of odd because Jesus seems to mix his metaphors up here to talk about a wolf in sheep's clothing, but then tree-bearing fruit, and if you think about it, it's actually kind of confusing. I've taught through this many times, and I remember for many years I would beat my head against this because these, seem, these metaphors seem to work the opposite way, right? A wolf in sheep's clothing who's doing good things is only effective because it does actually look like the person is bearing good fruit, right? But then the inside idea is that you can tell a tree by its kind of fruit. So how do these go together? Is this is this like these bi- bad high school English papers where people accidentally mix metaphors up, right? Like I've, got, I've wrote down a few of them here that are classics um, of mixed metaphors. So for example, um, it's as easy as falling off a piece of cake or it's time to step up to the plate and lay your cards on the table. Or one of my favorites, we have to get all of our ducks on the same page. Is that is that what, I mean, that's what this almost feels like, right? You've got wolves in sheep's clothing and Trees bearing fruit. How does this go together? Well, I'll suggest you go out on a limb and say Jesus is not writing a bad high school English paper. But there's actually a genius to bringing these two ideas together, and it's this. It's a couple things. One is that I think by adding this tree-fruit metaphor, which is a really common one in the Bible. We just saw it in Psalm 1. By adding this to the wolf and sheep's clothing idea reminds us that actually sometimes it takes time to discern what's truly good fruit. In other words, a wolf in sheep's clothing looks good on the outside, but inside they are not good. And so eventually, the idea of the tree bearing a certain fruit, eventually that will be made clear. Because you see, when you you have two trees, 
you sometimes can't even tell what kind of tree it is and what kind of fruit is going to produce. And even if you have one tree that's going to be very fruitful and one that's not, you can't tell at first. It takes time. It takes a while for the, the fruit to come to bud and then to, to blossom and to produce fruit. And so too, I think this image helps us kind of understand when Jesus is saying there are people that look like they're doing good things but actually, inwardly, they're wolves. I think that metaphor helps. But there's something even more powerful, I think, about how this works together in this passage, and that is this. That I think in these images, Jesus is deeply challenging you and me to reconsider what really good fruit is. He's challenging us to reevaluate what we think good fruit is fruit is. Because after all, these false prophets that he tells us to be aware of, they're producing fruit. They're casting out demons. They're preaching great sermons. They're doing miracles. They're prophesying all in Jesus' name. But he's saying this is actually not necessarily good fruit. There's nothing wrong with doing those things. But our tendency is to say that's good fruit where Jesus is challenging us to say, that's not necessarily good fruit. And what he's tapping into, friends, is this universal human tendency to always evaluate and value the things on the outside. We all love flashy people. We all love attractive people. We all love people who have nice homes and lots of money, everything, and people who have the amazing gifts of speaking and all these things. We all are attracted to that. And Jesus is saying, you know, those things aren't necessarily bad if they're done from a good heart, but the real issue is what is inside that person. And what is the kind of fruit? If you're just asking yourself, reading Jesus' Sermon on the Route, reading the Gospel of Matthew, reading the New Testament, what kind of fruit does Jesus really care about? Does he care the most about casting out demons, prophesying, performing miracles? He does all those things. But what does he say is the best kind of fruit? What does he really care about? What does God care about the Father? We don't have to go very far back into, again, chapters 5 and 6, and you'll see, take the Beatitudes again, that what Jesus says is good fruit is faithfulness in marriage, is mercy and love and compassion and humility and peacemaking. Everything in us wants to value those external flashy gifts, but everything in Jesus says, what I value is the inner person that is aligned with God. And as I thought about this this week, I, I realized, you know, there's a whole book of the New Testament that's dedicated to this whole issue. A whole book. You know what it is? It's 1 Corinthians, the first letter, this letter we call 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote. And what's going on in 1 Corinthians? Well, you have all these Christians and some pseudo-Christians who are experiencing these amazing powers of the Holy Spirit. So they're speaking in tongues, they're prophesying, they're preaching, they're healing people. The apostles did these things too. They're, they're great. They're all good. And Paul doesn't write to say, stop all that. That stuff's bad or from the devil. Not at all. He encourages it, but he is concerned about something. Do you know what Paul's concerned about? That everybody there is amazed at these awesome gifts that they're experiencing and other people are experiencing. And people are saying, wow, that person has amazing gifts and that's amazing. I'll follow that person. I'll follow that person. And in the midst of all that, they're missing the most important thing. 
And literally in the midst of his arguments, so in, if you get to chapters 12, 13, and 14 of 1 Corinthians, he talks extensively about all these spiritual gifts in chapters 12 and 14. What's right in the middle of all his discussion of these amazing spiritual gifts? Do you know? You've all had grandma's cross stitch it for you. You all used it at your wedding, right? It's more than a wedding text. It's 1 Corinthians 13. Do you know the context of that? It's smack dab in the middle of the concern about everybody being amazed at spiritual gifts. And what does he say? Let me read it for you. It'll make more sense now. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, same thing Jesus is talking about here. Can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, nine PhDs in, in, in theology. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, you're an amazing miracle worker. But I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, it's amazing. It'd be great if you were that sacrificial and give over my body to hardship, right? That I might take confidence in that. But I don't have love, I gain nothing. And listen to these fruits of the Spirit that he talks about. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others with judgmental words and hearts. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Anybody easily angered on the way to church this morning? Keeps no record of wrongs. Anybody have a little list that you're, I guess you don't pet a list, but you can imagine petting a list. You have a little list of record of wrongs that you're nurturing and adding to. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth and it always protects and it always trusts and it always hopes and it always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the wholeness or the completeness comes, when Jesus returns, what is in part is just going to disappear. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Now, we see only as a reflection, as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Jesus, Paul, God are inviting us to to rethink what is truly good fruit. Everything in us wants to value the external, and God says, I want the inner person to be transformed, to be like me, which is ultimately love. And so now, can you begin to see that these two images, and again, Pastor Kevin will pick up the third one next week, but these two images are connected. This isn't just an accident. The two roads and the wolves, false prophets, what's the connection between them? 
It's the exact same message that God sees and cares about the inner person. It's inner righteousness, the, the difficult way, not just external outward righteousness, not just the broad way where you're doing a bunch of religious things, but the inner way, not just the wolf way where you're doing all these miraculous flashy gifts, but the inner person is what God cares about. In both images, what seems natural and easier and more attractive to us turns out not to be what God really values. The broad and easy way of religious piety, focusing on outward spirituality when our hearts from far from God, the flashy false prophets that look good on the outside but are inwardly wolves whose fruit is eventually revealed. In other words, these final illustrations at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount are saying the same thing he's been saying during the whole sermon. And I said it several weeks ago, and I'm not ashamed to say it again because you and I need to keep hearing this. God sees and cares about our hearts. That's what he's inviting us to, to a spirituality, to a reality that is bigger and deeper, that exceeds the righteousness of mere externality. So instead of a Hungari- the Hungarian poster that just has two ways, what we really need is a three-way poster. That is, that on one side, on the left side, you do have all kinds of bad choices and immorality. And if one, as Paul says, if you give yourself to those things, it will be destruction. That's one side. But on the right-hand side, you also have another large section where it's people doing a bunch of good things, but their hearts are far from God, and that also will lead to destruction. But the narrow middle way is the way of people whose act, their lives are actually going to be very mixed. There's going to be plenty of sin and brokenness. There's going to be imperfection. There's going to be failures. But what distinguishes that middle way of Jesus' way is people whose hearts are attuned to him. That's the narrow way, the true sheep way. As I thought about this this week, I had all these images coming to mind, mostly from the 70s, probably in 80s. So some of these will make sense to you, some of not. But I think of Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner, right? So he's always trying to get him, and he, he paints this way, this road, like on a cliff, hoping that the Roadrunner will run right into it. It's, it's, it looks really good, but it's not the true way. Now, the, the analogy breaks down because Roadrunner can go through it when Wiley Coyote's, I don't know if he's a type of Christ or what's going on and all that. But the point is, a way that looks good to us may not be the true way. It probably often isn't. Or I thought of, again, maybe this dates me a little bit, but I thought of going to a furniture store and seeing like these huge televisions that look really nice, right? Especially in an era when not everybody had these huge flat screens. You'd see these huge televisions, but you go up to them and they just realize it's actually just a piece of plastic. There's no, there's no innards in it, right? You can't turn it on or actually doesn't project anything. It's just a big piece of plastic that is made to look like a television, but it's not really one, right? Or I thought of an image of a road that, has, that looks all good, but it's actually a pit has been dug and it's covered over to, so that people might fall in or animals might fall in. Or I think of a, of a facade, like a beautiful outside of a, of a building, but then there's nothing behind it. I, I don't know if it's still this way, but like downtown when they were you know, preserving some of these facades and then you'd get on the other side of it, oh, that's all there is. There's just a facade, right? There's nothing there. Everything in us 
is inclined to only value that external, and Jesus is inviting us to re-see the world in a different way and recognize that what God sees and cares about is our heart in, all, in both of these images. So to apply this, to give us some takeaway this week, I just I want to say two things, all right? And the first is this. First, I want to give you a, and me a challenge to reevaluate what we value in ourselves and others, to, to be willing to reevaluate what we value in ourselves and others. And I could talk about this in a million ways, but let me just tell you this one story from my own life so that where I really sort of saw this. So uh, among the many other number of things I do in my life, there was a time about, I don't know, seven or eight years ago where for a few years I taught um, a middle school Bible class, right? Uh, with mostly boys, probably 20 boys in there or something, a couple of girls. And I always like to say that if there is such a thing as Protestant purgatory for me, that would be it, right? I mean, that, that was like, uh, it was fine, some good came out of it. But at the end of that, I realized this is not what I'm called to do. If you're called to do that, awesome. Please do it for me uh, because it, is, it was a real challenge to hurt all these boys or whatever. So, but I remember one day when I was teaching this, it, I remember it went particularly well and I was really happy. And we were, I was teaching in Genesis 1 and about the creation story and just explaining that throughout history, a lot of people, Christians have read, and Jews have read this very differently. There's not just one way to read Genesis 1 and about the age of the earth and all this kind of, and I explained all this and I thought it was just this brilliant thing and they were so engaged or whatever, right? And so imagine my chagrin that over the next several days, I started hearing this rumbling that various moms of all these ever reliable junior high boys that I'm sure gave totally faithful reports of what was said in class, they were beginning to talk to each other and were upset with each other about some things I supposedly had said about this and hearing all that. And I'm like, I know these people. Nobody was talking to me about it, right? But I'm starting to hear these things. You can imagine, it was just like emotionally a train wreck for me, right? Because I think none of us like to be misrepresented, but maybe particularly me as a teacher, like I, I I feel like I was really trying to love them and help them. I thought it went so well. And then I'm hearing all these moms are mad at me and nobody's saying, I know these people. I'm standing next to them on the soccer field, right? All these, all these kind of things. And so I was mad, right? Because I'm, I'm hearing all these things and I sit down to write an email and I am going to destroy them, right? <laughs> I'm Dr. Pennington. You know, that's how I'm going to sign it, right? And you know, you should not judge others. If you, someone has a trouble, you know, I had all these Bible verses laid out, you know, of all the things I was going to reprove them with, right? And thankfully, my wife walked by, looked over my shoulder and said, I don't think you want to send that email. And uh, I think that was a very wise moment, as she often is, always is for me. And so I realized, yeah, okay, wait a minute. I don't, this is not, this behavior is not going to help. If I just blast them, even though I feel totally self-justified in that, that's actually not going to help. And so I didn't. I thought, okay, what, what should I do? So instead, I will take the humble road, right? And I will write them an email, because I knew I needed to write everybody and explain this, own what I could, explain ways that I may have been not even clear, explain what I think about all this, and just not blame anybody, just own it and be humble and do, do what's right. So that's what I did. And I'm glad I did, because the impact of that behavioral choice was huge, right? It's much better to do that than to blast other people, right? So that's great. So I was very proud of myself that I had done the right thing or whatever. But then I noticed over the next several days, it kept going, that I was still so mad. 
And in the theater, the cinema starring Jonathan Pennington that's always running in my mind, I was imagining, you have one of those too, right, probably? I was imagining, you know, starring, uh, and I was imagining me just like these perfect responses, you know I mean, just blasting them again and just showing them up, and they're just going to be so repentant. I'm so sorry. You were so right. I was so wrong. Right? And just imagining all these, all these ways that I would be vindicated, right? And I realized, oh, So I did the right thing, and I'm glad I did. It's better to do the right thing than to not. But that wasn't enough. God wanted more from me than just doing the right thing because there was no life there. There was no true life. There was no true transformative knowing of God there. There was no spiritual work in me just doing the right thing. God wanted to work in my heart and invite me to say, why am I valuing that everyone thinks I'm awesome? Or why is it so important to me that I'm never misrepresented? Of course you're going to be misrepresented when you speak ever, right? Why, why are these values that I have to win here and I have to be vindicated? And I realized that that's the difficult way. That's the narrow way to open yourself to the Lord and say, okay, I, I want to do what's right. But God, I want you to do something deeper in me. I want you to transform me in the inner person. Make me a person of love. Make me a person of love. And, and this week, whatever you face, you're going to face things you know are coming down the pike to you. You're going to face some things you're not, you have no idea that are going to happen, large things, small things. Do what's right when you face those. It's good. It's better to do what's right than not. Right? Don't blast people, don't be mean-spirited, whatever. But pay attention to the invitation from Jesus to open yourself to the Lord to say, God, transform me and make me a person of love and peace and mercy and kindness in the inner person. That's the more difficult and narrow way, but it's the way of life. It's the way that leads to life. So the second of the two things I want to just help us think about is I want to give you then an encouragement, kind of along the same lines, but a little different too, an encouragement towards, again, the inward journey and and really valuing the inward journey. As I reflected this week on this false prophet teaching especially, I realized there's a beautiful encouragement there. And I realized when we hear those words about Um, false teachers, and then Jesus saying, I never knew you. I think for probably most of us, that really strikes fear in us, and I get that. But let me assure you, that's not the point of what Jesus is saying. He's he's not saying like, okay, yeah, I know you were faithful and loved me and did all these things, but at the end, there might be, oops, sorry, you weren't really part of me. That's not at all what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is to be aware that we all tend to value in ourselves and in others the outward appearance, but again, there's no life there. To instead pay attention to the inside. This is not, these verses are not meant to scare you into heaven or something. They're meant to constantly reshape your values and your attitudes to recognize that flashy external things, doing the right thing and having all these great gifts or whatever, that's fine, but that's not what God really cares about. It's not meant to make you afraid of losing your salvation. It's meant to encourage you in the life of discipleship to retrain your values and your heart. So here's the encouragement. 
you don't have to have flashy gifts and talents to be a faithful Christian. You don't have to have flashy gifts and talents to be a faithful Christian. Some of you here today are CEOs, some are kindergarten teachers, writers, accountants, brain surgeons, financial planning wizards, administrators, bus drivers, salesmen, pilots, ditch diggers, watch repairmen. All those things are great. Those are amazing. And whatever God gives you to do with your hands and your head, he rejoices in that. Whatever work you have, he rejoices in that. You can rejoice in that. I rejoice in that. We can rejoice together when you do your things with beauty and excellence. That's great. That's amazing. But at the same time, recognize that no matter what your job and calling is or currently is, none of that matters relative to what God sees and cares about, which is your inner person, your character, him forming you by his spirit to be in his image, to look like him, to be remade into the image of God in Christ, which means, friends, that we need to emphasize and recognize that the inward journey of development by the power of the Spirit transforming us means that it does not matter what the world says about how we're all evaluated. God sees the inner person. What I mean is this. In our society, some jobs are just more valued than others. Some people here have a lot more money than others. Some people are a lot more attractive than others. All these things that we tend to evaluate each other by, God says, I don't care about that. I don't care if you're the best pilot or the best programmer or the mediocre whatever. What actually God sees and what is the great level playing ground is who we are in the inner person. So stop evaluating each other and stop evaluating yourself by what you can accomplish and how much money you have and all these things. God doesn't care. He does not care a bit about all your titles or any of that, but he does care about your heart. He does. And he loves you and he wants to transform you. And and as I've thought about this passage for myself, and as I think if I were teaching a bunch of uh, pastors about this, I think there's a potential danger, a, a, a potentially very serious danger here because we are like professional religionists. So it's very easy to take value in the fact that our, our gifts are related to doing spiritual things. That's particularly dangerous, but it's dangerous for all of us to begin to think that what we do in our lives and what our society says we're important about is what we really are. That's not who you really are. So whether you are at a lowly job or at a high job, Today is the day to turn to the Lord and remember that he sees and cares about and wants to transform you in the inner person, and that's good news. I encourage you towards that inward journey. And every week, we close our services, not tritely, with this table. And I want to connect it to what we're saying here today to remind you that when you and I look inside, if you're, if you're going to listen to what I'm saying today, to what Jesus is saying, you're going to realize that very quickly our hearts are not lined up with our behavior. Our behavior is good and bad, and our hearts are always a cauldron of messed up stuff, right? And none of us is wholehearted. None of us is this kind of true inner person in the way that God wants us to be and that God's making us to be. So what do you do? What do you do if you start this inward journey 
and you look inside, maybe you're not a Christian today and you're hearing this and you're going, yeah, my heart is messed up. What do we do when we see this disconnect at the core level? Well, here's the good news. That's why the one who's calling us to this and teaching this gave himself as a sacrifice so that we might be made alive, put in him by his grace and empowered by the spirit now to walk in God's ways. We do not have to figure out our way to get to God. He has sacrificed himself to make a way. And he says, my body is being broken and my blood is being poured out because I'm making a covenant with you so that you can be in me and I in you so that you can experience by the power of the spirit this deeper transformation. If you do not have Christ, you will never know this. And so today, if you're not a Christian, don't partake in this. There's nothing magical about this. This is an opportunity for Christians to come forward in repentance, recognizing that our hearts are disconnected from our lives often, and asking God to fill us with his spirit again so that we might become more wholly integrated between who we are on the inside, that we might bear fruit and experience life. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.